is the observance day, the the one part, and the half moon, the waning moon night. So the moon is its light is increasing, the darkness is decreasing as we contemplate the, the moon. The moon is a religious symbol, isn't it? There's the sun and the moon. So the, the sun is the, the kind of center and great light force, and the moonlight is a reflected light of the sun. And the moon is changing, changeable, isn't it? It's, it changes every night. It increases or decreases the light from the moon. And reflected light is gentle and kind, isn't it? It's mysterious, moody. Mm. Where the sunlight is, isn't. It's very strong, very direct. If you're in the, if you're, if the sun is strong at noontime, in the summertime, or say in, if you're living in Thailand, more toward the equatorial part of the planet, where the sun is very strong, at noontime, in Bangkok, you get this overwhelming light, such strong heat and light coming at you, that you have everybody runs in and hides from it. Whenever the sun comes out here, we all run out to enjoy. <laughs> but the sun, of course, is a symbol for the, the center uh, of light, enlightenment. It's a symbol of the Buddha. And the moon is a symbol for the compassion, isn't it? It's a lunar principle of, of change and gentleness and not, is not strong light, is it? When moonlight is always kind to people. It isn't, doesn't burn or scorch or destroy. It's a reflected light, so it is gentle, compassionate. We all look, we all can look quite nice in the moonlight, can't we? We're in the, in midday sun, we can look pretty horrible. I was noticing it when, when one time I was in Bangkok and there's a coachload of European tourists. I saw all these, and this was at the time of the mini skirts became popular, and all these, uh, European tourists were kind of climbing out of this bus and these, kind of very kind of substantial European women in these tiny little skirts and they kind of flabby legs and, and this white skin and wrinkles it was just they're absolutely uh, everything exposed in its in the most awful detail in the in the bright sunlight of mid-noon in Bangkok well, I suppose in the moonlight they would look quite fetching. <laughs> in the moonlight, of the compassion of the moon, these same 
same women would have looked maybe quite glamorous and quite attractive. Now this is a reflection on just symbolism of how of what is on light itself, or the meaning of light and darkness. Because these are this is what what we live with as human beings, isn't we? We live in a universe of light and darkness. We experience just on the visual plane. We experience the daytime, the nighttime, the phase of the moon the seasons of the year, we can observe just the changing, the way things change in their natural way. It has nothing to do with our wishes, is it? It's just the way it is. We have no control over the seasons or the, or the night or the day. It's just that way. It's, it's the natural law, the way things are. The sun and the moon we can just think of them in very scientific ways as, uh, uh, through kind of formulas and scientific theories, but also they represent something more than that, don't they, to us? And they've always been kind of used in any religion for their symbols because we're very much involved within this human realm in this, this experience of light and dark, of day and night, of birth, old age, sickness, and death, of time, condition. Then our practice is to reflect on it, to contemplate it. And sometimes we, we, uh, we tend to not even notice. Don't we? we can live in such an artificial world, an abstract world of just false views and ideas that we, we don't even notice the way things are. I mean, really, what madness is, isn't it? What, what madness really amounts to is believing in a lot of false views we have about ourselves and the world we live in that has nothing to do with the way it actually is. It's just a, a nutty creation out of our, out of our mind the way we interpret, the way we, the, the obsession that uh, we have in our mind can have, have nothing to do or no real direct relationship with the way things actually are. <coughs> and that's what the self-view is, isn't it? The self, the I am, is, is an abstraction of the mind that we project out onto the way things are. And this is what the Buddha was pointing to, was it, that this abstraction, this illusion of a, of a self in regards to the five khandhas, only made life extremely difficult for all of us. And we tended to persecute each other, persecute ourselves, and quarrel and fight and just, and, and just endlessly kind of cause misery either alone by ourselves or when we're with each other or as a nation of people or society or whatever, as long as this self-view is believed in and we, we act from that 
position of a of a self with that delusion of the avicca, bhajaya, sankhara, then all we can expect from life, from our experience of life, is misery, despair, and death. That's pretty grim, isn't it? That's all there is. If if you if you are determined to hang on to the illusory projections of your mind as reality. Because it can only, all all that can only lead toward despair, towards misery, towards fear, anxiety, worry, depression, death, separation, destruction, desolation, And the Buddha pointed to the way of seeing things as they are. And this is what we mean by enlightenment, is seeing in the light the way it actually is. We can actually see and notice and observe the way it actually is. We, don't, we aren't doomed toward living in a realm of, of delusion and there's no way out of it. There's a very clear way out of it, very exact, precise, way out of that uh, realm of misery. So, the Buddha said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. I teach only two things, suffering and the end of suffering. Now, the self-illusion needs to be really investigated because it's it's a it's an endless circle, if, uh, isn't it? If we're trying to just deny self, with uh, as as a, taking a stand that there is no self on the plane of just think of abstract thought again, because then we get caught in that in that cycle. To believe that you don't have any self will take you to soka pariteva tukatomanasupayasa, just like believing that you have a self, because they amount to the same thing. To believe without any wisdom, without looking into the way things are, but just to take a position that you have a self or you don't have a self, that will create this misery, despair. It's not, that's where, when Buddhism is a baffling religion to Westerners because it has no doctrinal position. It's not making doctrinal statements about ultimate reality or anything. There's suffering and the end of suffering. I teach only two things, suffering and the end of suffering. And that's to be realized now. To realize the end of suffering, you have to admit what suffering is. You have to know what suffering is. So you, Because the problem isn't with, with, uh, the, with the suffering, but with the delusion, the grasping, And we have to really understand suffering. So this sermon of the Four Noble Truths, suffering is to be understood. There is suffering. It should be understood. Suffering, and then the, the realization or the insight into the First Noble Truth, I understand. There's this understanding of suffering, of dukkha. And understanding is, is what, in this sense? 
is actually admitting it, noting, noticing what suffering is. There is suffering. And just in a daily life here at Amaravati, we, we notice when we're suffering, you, you become more aware, aren't you, that you're suffering here. Now you can blame it on the weather, blame it on the people, or blame it on whatever, but, but that's not the point, is it? because even if, even if somebody is treating us badly, that's just the way the world is. Sometimes people treat us well, sometimes they treat us badly. Just, those are just worldly concern, conditions. But the suffering is something we create. So in, 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 a, in a monastery, you're trying, to, you're trying to take on the responsibility so that we're not intentionally causing anyone to suffer. Our intention is not in this monastery to make each other miserable, isn't it? We're here to, to encourage each other towards moral responsibility, towards uh, cooperation, kindness, compassion. That's our intention. Sometimes we, we, we get lost, we blow up at each other, or we, we do things that aren't very nice. But that's not our intention. Those, those, are, those are the heedless moments. Our intention, then, is, is toward moral responsibility to each other. I, I conduct myself in a moral way, not only for my own benefit, for my own practice, but because out of respect for you and, and for the Sangha, for the community around here, to, to be some, someone that lives within the restraint of the moral precepts. Then, then my intention is, to, is towards my relationships with you, or towards, say, metta and kindness and, and uh, compassion, joyousness calmness, serenity. So that's the, that's, that's the intention for living here. But then, sometimes uh, things can be misunderstood uh, or heedless moments. Uh, one says something uh, not very nice or whatever. These are just... But then, that isn't the intention for our life, is it? So in one way, we, we see the community here, at least our intention for every one of us as Sangha is to do good, refrain from doing evil, purify the mind. And that helps us to begin to really look at the suffering we create in a community that's aiming at that. Because a lot of you really suffer here. <laughs> Don't you? You really suffer here in Amravati over what? And this is, this is to be understood. This suffering is to be understood. It's the, it's the first noble truth, this dukkha, that we, what we, what we, the suffering of not getting what we want, of, of things not being the way we want them, of separation from the light, of having to do that which we don't want to do, of, of having to uh, be restrained when we want to... Uh, and be unrestrained of uh, just the, the just the pressures and conditions that we create in our mind around living in the community in, in this particular place. 
all the, the projections we might make onto it. And I think of how it is to create you all in my mind as kind of fixed perceptions. The nuns are like this, the Anagarikas are like that, the bhikkhus are like this, and so forth. And there's, and one can have these fixed perceptions, kind of biases. Women are this way and men are that way. Or, or uh, Americans are like this and the English are like that and the Thais are like this and the Sri Lankans are like that. Or we can, all these, can, we can believe as uh, having some kind of real validity. But these are perceptions of the mind, aren't they? That, that uh, condition, the view, uh, they arise, they cease. And yet we can create a lot of suffering about it. About each other's personalities or characters. And so we suffer from, because this one walks in a certain way, this one doesn't come to the morning chanting, or that one isn't doing their share of the work, and this one, this one is, uh, uh, thinks they're too important, or that one, uh, or whatever, we just go on and on about who is arrogant, or who's, has a, who doesn't fit in, who fits in, who doesn't fit in, who's a good monk, who isn't a good monk, and on and on like this. But the issue, the important point, is the suffering, the dukkha. This is, because when we do that, and we do it with heedlessness, with avicca, then we create despair in our mind. We get irritated, frustrated, annoyed, fed up, angry, indignant, and that all takes us to a sense of despair, misery, and so forth. And, then we, and if we don't notice and observe, then if we don't understand dukkha, then we're just going to do that wherever we are, whether we're in Amavati, or in London, or in Bangkok, or in Washington, D.C., or wherever, in the mountaintop, or in the valley, with the good people or the bad people. So it's important to really observe suffering, to know the dukkha. There is this dukkha. It should be understood. And then that's the, that's the, that's the uh, insight. These are the three insights into the first noble truth. There is dukkha. It should be understood. It has been understood. That's what, in how insight works. A recognition of it of the of the of the of the truth, recognition of the first noble truth, the the uh, the step uh, the 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 practice of it should be understood. The recognition that it is something to understand, and then to know when we understand it. So that that the three three insights into the first noble truth, second noble truth is the origin, the samudaya. There is an origin. It is due to the grasping of desire. Gamadana, pavadana, vipavadana. This grasping of desire. Mm. 
The origin of suffering is due to grasping desire, dhanha, dhanha ubadana, the grasping, and though they, it should be let go of, pahadapandi, the person is the way of letting go, leaving, letting things go, laying them down, if you're, if you're holding them, let, let, uh, laying down, letting go. So, the second noble truth should be let go of, or the, the samudaya, this, the, this the attachment to desire, this identification with desire, this alignment with desire as being me and mine, this following of desire, whatever way you want to put it, should be, there should be the letting go or the laying down of it, leaving it as it is. So then the third insight into the second noble truth is desire has been let go. It's through practice of, through the insight it should be let go of, then the practice, that's the bhati-bhata, then the bhati-veti, or the result of that practice, is the third insight of desire has been let go of. Dukkha has been let go of. The samudaya. There's the, the, the bariyati, which is the first insight into each of the truths. There is suffering, there is the origin of suffering. The bhatibhat is the... It should be let, It should be understood for the first noble truth. For the second, it should be let go of. That's the, that's the practice, the insight into practice. What we do, how we practice. And then the third is the bhati-veti, or the result of that practice, is the bhati-veti insight. It has been understood. It has been let go of. Now, when when the, the, that insight, it has been let go of, suffering, the origin of suffering, the samudhi has been let go of, is this letting go, and we... It's a, the bhati-veti is the insight knowledge of that result, of actually letting go of something, you know what it's like to not be attached to something. Like this clock, you're holding this clock, this is holding the clock, it's like this. It feels like this, holding this clock is like this. I'm, I'm meditating on, on what it's like to be holding a clock. And then, now I'm aware of what it's like not holding a clock. Now, if I'm a, if I'm a grasper, I'm always holding things, then, and I'm heedless and ignorant, then I'm always just going around holding things all the time, grasping this and that, and, and just indulging and grasping and clutching at everything and I don't even notice when I'm not when there's no grasping you aren't aware of it it's just like the really ignorant heedless person they're just so caught up with grasping they, they just go from one thing to the next even though they're not grasping something all the time because they're coming out of ignorance they're always they're only 
they only feel alive. They only notice when they're when they're grasping at something. Like how many of you feel alive only when you're when you're filled with uh, greed or anger or something some some form of desire. And that's where it becomes quite frightening to people when they when they let go of things because suddenly they feel like they're no longer alive. Like it, it, there's a lot of investment in being a personality. I'm a even the view that I have a bad temper. I have a lot of anger. It can be a kind of conceit, you know, that if I'm angry, I feel very much alive. I'm grasping this anger, and it makes me really feel alive. When I'm not angry, I feel, although I'm just fall asleep, I'm nothing clunk. Because I'm not mindful when I'm not angry, or I'm not greedy. Sexual desire makes you feel alive, doesn't it? If you sexual fantasy, why there's so much obsession with sex in modern uh, European life is because it makes you feel so alive. And when when there's no sexual desire, no anger, and just confusion and dullness, and but there's no mindfulness in there at all. You, so one just has to seek more. Uh, kind of sensual pleasure to eat something, have sexual uh, relations, or or drink something, or take drugs, watch something on the telly, read something, go have an adventure, do something dangerous. Street gangs, what do they do? Robert was telling me about being a skinhead on the Isle of Wight. What it's like to spend a weekend as a skinhead where you do things, you break the laws in order to get the police to chase you. So that you <laughs> because that's exciting, isn't it? If you don't have any money, you're poor on the dole, and uh, and you don't have anything to do, you can break the law. It doesn't cost anything. And you, <laughs> and you can have some excitement. You have a chase, get arrested, act tough. And all this is very exciting. Because when there's nothing, no excitement, then you just, it's, it's frightening, isn't it? It's boring, it's dreary, it's depressing if you're not mindful. Now, just, for example, just lifting this clock up and putting it down. Now, that imagine trying to get people to do that on the weekend. Just to spend a weekend holding the clock, noticing what it's like holding the clock. And then what it's like not holding the clock. What a waste of time. I could be out... Um, Terrorizing the police. <laughs> I could be at a disco with with every kind of with strobe lights and music blaring in my ears, with with pot and LSD and and, and scotch and all this and beautiful girls on my lap and. <laughs> 
just, you know, everything, all this sensual delights just pounding away at me all at one moment. And then the scene here, what's it like holding a clock in your hand and, what, and not holding a clock? <laughs> so then, but then, then it's for reflection. Uh, now, if if uh, if all I know is holding a clock, then then I'm not really going to even notice that I'm holding it. I just it's just a habit. I pick it up and I put it down. Then I pick up the, the facial tissues and then I fiddle with this little microphone and I fiddle with mic go on like this. What am I sitting here for? I want to go out. I want to go down to the cock and bottle and really live it up. Have a real good time. Live it up. Something really exciting. But if I'm reflecting on Dhamma, then then this this is is uh, something that one begins to notice and noticing, bringing attention to the way things are. Is you're no longer just distracting your mind by running about. But that looks really ugly and painful, isn't it? Nothing seems really more unpleasant to me than having to go to the cock and bottle. I can imagine, even though I've never been inside. I can, I can kind of, I know kind of what it probably is like, and it just doesn't sound very like anything you'd want, anyone would want in one's life. To just be drinking beer with loud music blaring in your ears, with all these silly people trying to distract themselves. I mean, what a hell realm! What an awful, horrible place to have to be, and yet heedless unenlightened human humanity rushes to those places where you can be truly heedless, absorbed in all kinds of things uh, and uh, lost in this world of greed, hatred and delusion. When we're contemplating the noble truths, then just this, holding a clock and not holding a clock. This evening is, a, is, a, is, is like we sit till, till midnight. There's a chance to observe more what it's like to be sitting and to be when there is when the mind is is filled with thoughts and when there are no thoughts. When there is suffering and when there isn't suffering. If you, if you consider if you have a view that sitting till midnight is going to be suffering and you don't and then you then you've already You've already committed yourself to suffering till midnight. But if you start examining that very view or fear or doubt in your mind for what it is, you can observe when it's present and when it's not present. Is there suffering when, when you're not thinking that there's any suffering? When you think that it's suffering, then, 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 that's, then, then there's this feeling of suffering. When you attach to the view, I'm suffering, I have to sit up, I'm tired, blah, 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 blah. Suffering, suffering, suffering. So there's suffering. Suffering is to be understood. Suffering has there's an admission, a recognition, an understanding of suffering. This is what it is. The insight 
The second old is to let go of it. Leave it alone. Don't make anything out of sitting. All night sitting or anything like this. These are, these are perceptions. They're, they're, they're nothing, really, except that if you believe in the perceptions of a sitting till midnight is going to be suffering, then you've, you've already uh, established the suffering for, that, for, that, for this evening as an attachment that you're going to uh, be very much uh, deluded with. But if you're using the situation for reflection and contemplation, then you're aware of when there is suffering, when there isn't suffering. To know, notice when there is no suffering and when there is suffering. Letting, letting go. So when I, I'm aware of of holding this thought, grasping this thought, and aware of not grasping this thought, what it's like. I should hate to think that my life was just going to be holding on to this thought for the rest of my life. You know, how it would be difficult eating a meal, wouldn't it? If I had to hold this thought and eat with the same hand, and I'm right-handed, the idea of holding on to this thought forever is, is rather depressing. The fact that, that I can pick it up and put it down, then there's no problem. One can, can pick things up and put them down. And you, you, there's a knowing of how to use these things rather than this, this blind obsession of just grasping or rejection of them. When I put down the car, I don't have to throw it away, do I? Because it's, it's not because the holding the clock is wrong with holding it. It's just the ignorance about it. So that one is aware of the grasping and of non-grasping, of holding and of when there's no holding. So in the third noble truth, there is the cessation of suffering. So when you let go of something and you realize letting go, what happens to something? It ceases. When you let go of suffering, suffering ceases. So there is cessation. Niroda satcha. There is cessation. It should be uh, realized. Sajika dapandi. It should be Realize. So the, insi- the second insight into the third noble truth is it should be, that's our practice, to realize cessation. And that's the, and to notice when there's no grasping, when things cease, when suffering ceases. Not thinking that everything's going to disappear, like you, everything's going to dissolve into thin air, but the, suff- the feeling of suffering and I am and all that ceases. And it should be realized. It's not just to believe, not to be believed, the idea that there, that there is cessation, and not to just grasp the idea of cessation, but to realize, it should be realized. And then the third insight, that cessation has been realized. And from that, is the insight into the fourth noble truth because there's samaditi, right understanding, right view. 
the Eightfold Path. Samaditi, Samasangapo, Samavaja, Samagamanto, Samachivo, Samavayamo, Samasati, Samasamadhi. Now this is the path to, there is the way out of suffering, this path, this, and it's an eightfold path, and these eightfolds are, way are, you know, they, they connect with each other, but it's really just, uh, it's not that, that first you do one and then the other, they, they, they support each other, but they're each, uh, as we're, as we're, as we let go, as we realize, as we, as we uh, have the insight into letting go and realize cessation, then there is this right understanding and the rest follows from that. The development of the bhavana, development, bhavana is the development of that path. Now don't see this as kind of something that that deals with very big, important issues of life, but it's about the here and now, with the way things are, with the ordinariness of our lives. In, 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 a, in a monastic life, we're not seeking kind of extreme situations to work with. We're just sitting, standing, walking, lying down, breathing, feeling as moral beings, living in a moral environment, the way it is. We don't have to go into hell to really experience suffering. We're not seeking uh, going down to Leicester Square and and uh, and uh, going to live with the junkies and uh, uh, all that kind of miserable, wretched human beings. All uh, all that is horrible and miserable to experience suffering because we're working with suffering not not on in hell but in this human realm. The suffering that humans have, not hell spirit, is we can create hell at Amravati. Not because Amravati is hell, but because we're creating all kinds of miserable things from our mind onto it. So this is the suffering we need to 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 work with. The suffer with with the suffering in this human realm, this moral realm where our intentions are to refrain from doing evil and to do good, to develop virtue, to be kind, cooperative, to restrain ourselves from doing things that are harmful, cruel, unkind. That's our intention. And still, there's enough suffering here to, to contemplate these Four Noble Truths. Do you really understand? Do you know? For sure, have this insight. The twelve insights. There's twelve, aren't there? There's the, there's three insights for each truth. Four times three is twelve. <laughs> mm-hmm. A neat little package, isn't it? But these neat little packages are are very skillful tools for because they're e- easy to hold in your mind, aren't they? You memorize this Tamajaka Sutta. It it uh, it really if you really 
develop your meditation around just the Dhammajaka Sutta. That's all you really need, actually. That is Dhamma is is com- quite complete in itself. The brilliant sutra. You don't have to read the whole Tripitaka. Because this this one sutta contains all that's necessary to know. But just memorizing it isn't enough. It's not it's not as we're not superstitious. I think we memorize it and somehow the memorization of it's going to save us. But memorization in order to reflect on it, because you don't have to you don't have to always go to the to find the book and figure out what this is or that is. It's like Paticca Samupada. Memorize it. You can wherever you are you can kind of contemplate it. Where if you don't memorize it, then you have to carry your little book with you and figure out, you know, what does Sankara come before or after Vinyana? Or where does Pasa? Uh, Pasa, and, uh, and you have to look it up in your book. But because you got it all neatly memorized in your jitta, then you, you, you've got, you can, it's very nice to be able to do that, to have a mind that can, can, can do that. Because then wherever you are, even without your books, you've got this it's something to, to contemplate, a tool to use. Well, eventually, all these things we let go of because these aren't ends in themselves either. But they're the, like tools are to be used. They're not to be, they're not, to, you know, thinking, grasping tools is certainly, you're not going to be able to do anything. If you just grasp tools, you learn how to use tools. And when you've used them and you've finished, you don't need to hang on to the tools. So the Buddha referred to his teaching as a raft. And a raft, it's an interesting image, isn't it? A raft is you can make a raft out of the things around you. Now, you if you go to the beach or have to cross, you make a raft out of what's around you. You don't, you don't have to have high tech and special kind of super, super uh, uh, kind of uh, rowboats or motorboats or yachts or or submarines or aircraft carriers. Or luxury liners. A raft is something you, that you, you you gather the driftwood, the the vines, the things around to make a raft to get you across to the other shore. And this is what the Buddha was pointing to: that you, that what we're doing, we're not trying to 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 make a super duper vehicle, a high tech vehicle, but able to use what's around us all for enlightenment, the way things are right now, just the Debris, the flotsam and jetsam of the present moment. The way <laughs> all the things that are, are the Dhamma for us in these Four Noble Truths, we can see just the, the, the way it is with even the, from the 
when things are very nice and there's a lot of lovely things around or not so very nice, it's all rubbishy and unpleasant. Yeah, but we can, we still have this raft. Because the raft isn't, isn't dependent upon special conditions, but on using what's around, the way things are. Now the raft is uh, to carry us across the sea of ignorance, sankara. And when we get to the other shore, you don't, you don't to kind of, you, you can let it go. Which doesn't mean you throw it away. But this, this other shore can also be an illusion because we think, when I get across the other shore, then I can throw the raft away and forget it all. But consider that this is an ongoing process in this human form, that the other shore and this shore are really the same shore. <laughs> That's merely a, 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 an allegory or an, uh, a religious allegory. That we've never really left the other shore. We've always been on the other shore anyway. And the raft is something we use to remind us that that we're that you don't really need a raft. <laughs> so there's absolutely nothing to do. To be mindful, to, to be able to sit, stand, walk, lie down, eat your food, breathe. Uh, our opportunity as humans to do good. We have this lovely opportunity in the human realm to be good, to do good things. That's a lovely opportunity, not doing good because I want a reward and be reborn in heaven or in the two-seater realm the next life. But it's just a very, in this human realm, it, goodness is, is, a, is a very lovely thing to be able to do, to be good, to do good, to be kind, to be generous, to love others, to, uh, to serve others, to help others, to... This is this is a, one of the, the lovely qualities of human of being human of being in this form, and we have the opportunity to refrain from doing evil. That's a wonderful thing. We can decide not to do evil. We don't have to kill, lie, steal. We don't have to go to the cock and bottle. And if they just follow instinctual desires, go around fornicating and all this kind of thing, and just endlessly distracting ourselves and boozing ourselves up and drugging ourselves and getting lost in all kinds of silly moods and feelings, we can refrain from all that. This wonderful opportunity in this human form to refrain from evil and to do good. So to do good and refrain from evil isn't isn't something that we're doing 
as a kind of storing up merits for the next life. It's 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 the joy of our hum, of our of this human realm of this human birth of having body like this, being like this as a human being. This is our, this is the, the beauty of, of our humanity, the joy of being human. So that being human can be a joyous experience rather than an onerous task. Or if you start thinking, I have to be good, and I have to refrain from doing evil, otherwise I'll go to hell, onerous, doesn't it? Burdensome. Me, I have to, you know, I have to be good. You have to do good. Because if you don't do good, you get punished. I have to refrain from doing evil. I don't want to go to hell. You know, it makes it sound very kind of burdensome, like it wasn't, like it wasn't a joyous thing, and it wasn't an honor for us. It was just a task. Heavy burden being a human being. You're born in this form, and you have this body, and, you, and it feels pain, and it feels heat and cold, and you have to feed it, and it, it gets old, and it gets sick and dies, and then you have to be separated from the loved, and there's endless problems. And look at the world, you know, there's the Americans and the Soviets, and the nuclear threat, and the pollution, and the ozone hole, and the and the whales and the seals and the porpoises and then there's the, the aborigines and the American Indians and, the, and then there's the population explosion in China and Bangladesh and the poverty in the third world and the racial problems in South Africa and, and uh, communism and all this I just want to get out of this realm. I can't stand it. Too many problems, too much. Let me out. Or, I mean, that's one view, isn't it? Of life. Or just try this other one for a change. Just to see what it's like to be, have an opportunity to be good. And it sounds kind of Pollyanna-ish, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but it, but uh, try it. This the this the opportunity of, of in this human realm, the honor it is, and the occasions we have to be kind and good, compassionate, caring, uh, looking after others, helping, serving. Our opportunity to to we can we have a choice we can we can refrain from using our bodies and our minds and speech for anything unkind or cruel or unskillful. We have this Dhamma teaching. We have the Buddha as as a guide, the way of knowing of awakeness of uh, being alert. Of compassion, and so then, when we when we contemplate like this, we begin to really appreciate this birth in this human form. Be grateful to it to have this opportunity in this lifetime with our teacher, the Buddha, and 
our practice of the Dhamma, to live in the Sangha. The soul force, the soul force, The human community is, is uh, unified in virtuousness and moral restraint. And the power of that, the soul force of the human realm, meaning the, that, that which is truly kind and benevolent and good in humanity, has its effect. And the more of us that, that abide in this realm of doing good, refraining from doing evil, purifying the mind. That has a tremendous effect on the rest of all sentient beings are benefited by that. Imagine a world without Sangha or without a soul. What would it be like if there there, there was no, no bhikkhus, no monks, no nuns, no holy people at all? There is just Selfish humanity, and just each one for themselves, tremendously making demands. What if we all became totally selfish here at Amravati? Everyone just thinking about themselves, not caring about each other at all, and just following our impulses. This is what, what, what it would be like. I just want to live for myself and what I want, and I want to have this and I want to have that and I'll fight you. If, you. if you get in my way, I'll just kick you out of my way. And it'll be a survival because I've, I've been doing a lot of these exercises and I'm getting pretty strong. You know, I'm getting old. I could still knock you down, a few of you down. <laughs> I have strong legs and I give a good kick. It'd be survival of the fittest, the strongest, and and it would be, well, it'd be horrible, wouldn't it? It'd be a terrible place to be. Each one of us just thinking of ourselves and what we want and following our desires and impulses. But because we don't do that, because we abide in this Sangha, this, 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 uh, this, this convention of Sangha, this form, an abiding where we, where, where we live together in a, in, a, in a respectful way, moral way. It has its power. The people that come here feel it, don't they? They feel the sense, the strongness, the strength of the, of the Sangha. Now this is for reflection, for contemplation, to to just see how things work. What is it really like? To know when when you're holding the clock and when you're not holding the clock. To know when there's suffering and when there isn't any suffering. It's as simple as that. But it takes the ability to, to be awake and alert and watch and observe. Just these, these very 
It's a very ordinary kind of thing, isn't it? Holding the clock, not holding the clock is just nothing, really. Nothing important. Nothing uh, uh, urgent. Nothing, uh, and it can go completely unnoticed. But we start noticing, realizing the way it is. So this evening, and this is our opportunity to to practice with the teaching of the Buddha, to contemplate, reflect on the way it is, on what it's like to feel sleepy or wanting to go, or want, or whether we're feeling vigorous or weak, whether we're feeling high or low. I'm not asking you to feel any way, or that there's any way you should feel, but just notice the way it is. And to let go of it, not to grasp it, or try to get something you don't have, or try to get rid of something you have that you think you shouldn't have, but to just be able to leave things alone and observe how it actually is, how things arise and cease, and what, what it's like when, when something has ceased, what it's like when, there's, when, there, when something has arisen, when, do, when suffering has arisen, there is suffering. When suffering is ceased, suffering is to know that there is no suffering. That's what. That's why, in Buddhism, the Buddha said it. Each one is budgetong. You have to know it for yourself. It's something that only you can know and realize yourself. Nobody can realize that for you. This is where there's no outer force coming to zap you and make you into anything. But your own effort, your own right effort towards being awake, alert, and wise. You have to arouse yourself. You have to 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 be in the light yourself. Not not depend upon something coming externally and kind of pushing you or propping you up or holding you up. Whatever. We even have to let go of our need to be inspired. Our dependency on inspiration and encouragement. We have to be develop this strength to where we no longer need any kind of encouragement or inspiration from anyone else. Like with with, uh, I remember I used to contemplate this in, when I was uh, at Wat Pa Pong. I had great, uh, great, I felt very inspired by Lung Po Cha. And then I'd hear these stories, like I heard about the, the uh, you know, about these various scandals of teachers who, who people were inspired with, and then they, the, the teacher does something disgraceful. And uh, everybody gets this illusion, like Zen Center in San Francisco and all that. Teachers greatly admire, then he does something bad, and then everybody's greatly depressed and, and disillusioned. And then I see that. I've met people like Westerners in Thailand who had great... I remember uh, when I first before I even ordained, I met all these German bhikkhus in, in Watsu and Mok. Uh, what uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa's place. 
and these German monks were saying, oh, he's the greatest teacher, in, he's a real Zen master. And they were all into Zen. And he's, he's the, he, you know, he's the only really good teacher in Thailand. He's like a Zen master. He's wonderful. And they said, it's the only place worth being in Thailand is Wat Suan Mo. And they had all these strong opinions. And then the following year, I heard they all left, totally disillusioned, fed up. One went off to Japan to find a real Zen master. <laughs> the other just drifted around and, and waffled about. I've never heard the, the, the ones I still hear about. They're still kind of waffling about. Because they had all this inspiration, and then that inspiration isn't wisdom, is it? And they didn't, they didn't, uh, they didn't, they just, they just got high on Buddha Dasa. And when the when the high, when the when that feeling left, they they thought that that it was Tanjakun Puddhatasa's fault. They blamed him for it, rather than seeing it as their own stupidity. How many of you do that to me? <laughs> you get high, and Ajahn Tomato's wonderful, and then after a while you don't get high on me anymore. Then you think, Ajahn Tomato, disappointing. You let me down. Or, are you really looking at your mind? Really watching and observing how it is? Because inspiration is, is like eating sugar, it's like eating chocolate, isn't it? It tastes good and it's, it's really nice and very attractive, but it, 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 you're, you're, it's not going to really nourish you. It has no ability, to, it only has maybe energize you momentarily, and that's all it can do. So I used to contemplate, what if, what if Lung Po Cho actually did something, like ran away with a, uh, and, uh, and disrobed or did something scandalous? What would I do? Would I just give up and say, oh, Buddhism isn't any good? Or it doesn't. What happens to human beings, or whether they whether they live in the way that I want them to, or they're always inspiring for me, or they never disappoint me, or never upset me, or never disillusion me. <coughs> That's why it's, it's so important to find that to develop that insight from uh, through through practice rather than this seeking inspiration and going from one teacher to another to one scene to another where because inspiration wears out it's nothing that can last and if and if you're attached and blinded by it then you're in for terrible disillusionment disappointment depression bitterness There's a lot of that, because a lot of these gurus are incredibly inspiring, aren't they? You read about different charismatic guru figures that 
teach now in the world, and they get people very high. They just, you know, people just agog with, with their love and devotion to to these to these gurus. And then the gurus fall off the pedestals, and then they're as high as they've been, as high as they've climbed, they fall out into terrible depression. I spent a week at Swami Muktananda's ashram years ago in 1974 in India. And there it was all just incredibly high. I remember going there and, and uh, uh, there were about a hundred Western disciples there at the time of European, American, Australian, uh, descent, and then there were India, uh, Indian uh, devotees, mm. and the atmosphere was just electric with this inspiration. And you'd see these these uh, European girls or American girls in saris walking around, and their eyes just wide open in this kind of ecstatic trances. <laughs> It's quite, quite an impressive sight to see, and uh, and and then, and then the, all the stories about Swami Muktananda, about enlightened being and and uh, endless kind of, you know, in-group devotional jargon that was that one that you know you were hearing all the time, tremendous devotion. When, and I was there for a week. When I just when when I and I, I was going back to Thailand. I could see some of these people were very angry with me for not getting caught in this high. Because they wanted me to get, to follow along with it. And, uh, because I was because, I mean, I quite enjoyed being there actually, and I appreciated it. But I didn't, I didn't feel that I really wanted to stay there. So I was quite. Uh, I wanted to get back uh, to continue to kind of express my gratitude to Ajahn Chah. That's who I, you know, who I, who I really feel I should serve. So, anyway, they, some of them I could tell were quite, quite averse to me because I wasn't going along with their with their enthusiasm. But I wasn't dis- dismissing it either. I wasn't like condemning it. And then, what, several years ago, Swami Muktananda fell off the pedestal. He died, for one thing. And then, then there's the scandals. All these scandalous stories came out. People disillusioned, upset, hurt, angry, fed up. And I, and I thought of well, what it was like with all that kind of high, you know, how, you know, it's wonderful to feel that way, I admit. You know, it's kind of feeling so kind of intoxicated by all this, and then, and then, it, but it 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 is not balanced, is it? And so, as intoxicated as you can get with all with somebody somebody else's charisma and and and, and an intoxicating environment, you can't maintain it. It's beyond ability to maintain that, and it inevitably involves 
falling down into some the lower state. Where if you notice the the way of mindfulness is always appropriate to the time and the place. To pain and sickness and misery and and, and the way things are and, and both in it in their good aspect and bad aspect. So that suffering isn't dependent upon the world being good or bad, but Suffering depends on how willing we are to use wisdom in this present moment. The way out of suffering is now. It's not, it's not trying to find a place where everything is, is pleasant and, and, and happy, but it's being able to see things as they are, whatever way they happen to be in the present moment. So I offer this for your contemplation.